Blog Talk Radio. Network. I'm your host, Tori Gates. The town of Walton, New Hampshire, a peeler's an idyllic place, but for Penny McAllister, she, it seems, is only back here to settle the family account. Inevitably, the memories of home, family, of good and also bad flood back. The story of Penny and a friend's old and new revolves around an icon of New England's fabric, a sugar house. Kat Schmidt grew up in New Hampshire. She is a journalist and a book editor and now author with her debut work on Wicked Whale Publishing, quite plainly named The Sugar House. Kat is today's guest. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, I guess we should get the disclaimer out of the way. You and I both know each other somewhat well. Um, I am a native (laughs) New Englander as well. And um, we knew each other one year at a certain little college up in Maine. I was on my way out, and you were your first year, if I remember correctly. And then I was on my way out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's and that's yeah. sometimes how it went. Yeah, it was you, it was a great place, but they didn't have my major, so I had to transfer. Mm-hmm. And that is something we definitely are going to be getting into as we go along here. I want to start though back here at this particular town, Walton. Now. You've admitted that the Sugar House and this town is pretty much based on your hometown, but tell us about where you are taking us. Um, well, I could tell you a little bit about my actual hometown, which on which Walton is based. Um, I grew up in a little town on the Connecticut River called Walpole, and it was pretty much a Courier and Ives postcard. Um, mm-hmm. It was very idyllic. It was very quiet. It was really small. I think the population when I was growing up was somewhere around 1,200, 1,500. Mm-hmm. Um, and it afforded children the ability to have a childhood filled with wonder and innocence. We could ride our bikes. We could go climbing the hills. We could um, visit the cows at people's dairy farms down the road. It was a very special place to grow up. So I tried to capture that magic with Walton, which is very similar, um, is very reflective of Walpole, and is that quintessential sleepy New England village. Mm-hmm. Well, not much different from my growing up in Vermont. My hometown was probably at the time about a thousand more residents than than yours but you know i grew up on a dairy farm so it was the same thing um we had uh, we had hills we had fields that we could explore in um we didn't we didn't care if the neighbors kids passed through or if, if we passed through or anything like that we had all of that 
and uh, it is something that today is kind of, I hate to say it, it is a little bit lost. And uh, if there's a chance for kids to be able to be kids like we were, and I mean, what trouble can we get into in a small town, right? Especially when we're little. Yeah. Yeah, there, no, there wasn't much. I mean, I think the worst thing that I remember us getting into trouble with is certain people climbing on the roof of town buildings, but there wasn't much beyond that. There might have been some breaking into the local pool. Yeah, those things happen, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we didn't, it, but we didn't it was, have a little... It was just magical. That's cool. And, you know, that really reflects in Penny, our lead, because you've really painted a, a, a very straightforward character, but you've also layered her incredibly well. I mean, you, when you built her and, and, and made her, and we get to see some of that kind of peeled back throughout the, sh- uh, the, the program. Um, tell us about Penny. Where does she come from? Penny grew up in Walton and was part of the fabric of the community. She was a little bit of an offbeat kid growing up because she really liked to read books and was very creative, which in her era, which happens to be mine of the 1980s, that got you quickly labeled a a nerd. So she was sort of on the fringes. She wasn't she wasn't bullied in extreme ways, but she was definitely not one of the the it kids who um, was, you know, destined to be prom queen or anything like that. Um, right. But she was very intelligent, very astute, and really loved the area in which she grew up. Mm-hmm. Well, that certainly comes through. And... It's one of the things I always like to ask about characters is, especially with a lead such as Penny, uh, how did you, um, where did she come from in terms of your imagination? Is she based on yourself, other people? How, how do you how do you work them together? She is based a little bit on me, um, but a whole lot on the amazing women in my life. I have been blessed to know some really remarkable, talented, creative, very strong women. And I modeled Penny after most of them because Penny, um, without giving away too much, which I'm sure we'll get into later, um, Penny is a survivor. And Mm -hmm. in order to channel that, I really look towards some of the women that I am closest friends with and Chan- and sort of infuse Penny with their attributes. Mm-hmm. And well, without giving, we'll try not to give too much of this book away. But uh, <laughs> one of the other things too is the opening scene. This was really it sets the tone for the rest of the book, which which they should. And. I had a similar thing. Um, I just went back. I mean, I recently went back to my hometown for the first time in about 10 years for a wedding. And my drive up there really started to bring back things. I was doing research for another book. 
and I needed to see some places, and I needed to see things again. And it really brings those things back. Now, uh, did return visits to home help spark it, or was this something that was on your mind for a while as you were putting this together? I haven't been back to Walpole for a while, mostly because I live a pretty good distance away. Um, But it is a place that stayed with me. Um, mm-hmm. in spite of the challenges that I had growing up there, um, the physical beauty of the town is, it's incredible. It's a very special place. Um, I mean, it starts at the Connecticut river and it rises up through the hills. There are places mm-hmm. you can go that offer a panoramic view that rivals some of the best mountains. Um, so that has always been with me, um, throughout my own journey of life and moving all around and being in different places, even as I made my home on Cape Cod, there was so much of New Hampshire that was in my heart. And I really Mm -hmm. wanted to bring that to life in the book because it was genuinely a very beautiful place to grow up. Mm -hmm. And the thing is too, um, it sounds like it was pretty easy for you to write about it. It sounds like it was easy to bring that bring that into the book, was it? Yeah, it was because I loved the physicality, the 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 scenery and the gorgeousness of Walpole, um which actually hasn't changed quite that much since I was little. Um mm-hmm. but it was really easy to to capture that because I loved it so much. I think if I had to write about a place that I wasn't as enamored with, it would be far more challenging. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, too, because it's like uh, Penny is returning home, as I noted in the beginning, to sort of settled accounts, as it were. And Penny clearly is having to come back and face a lot of her past. And it looks like – it feels to me like the very human element of I have to do – this and I don't know if I can do it um, Yeah. to get that tone, to get that feeling how difficult is it to slip into that? It's almost like being an actor because you're playing yourself or you're playing that I would like to say that it was difficult but um, I drew upon what I experienced after losing my father a couple years mm-hmm. ago and the the stuff the, like the the life aspects that come at you that you have to go settle the house you have to take care of the the sale of it you have to take care of the finances um so i just sort of channeled that but it's it's also personal in the fact that it's when you lose someone and that part of you is gone it's very hard to go back because you're reminded instantly that, okay, my dad is not here. Um, how is it going to be? How am I going to feel walking into this place that was his, that was my family's, and it's different now? Yeah, I, I went through a, I went through the similar thing when my mother passed away in 2005. My father had died before, and it was the same kind of thing where we have to settle the house, we have to settle the farm issues, you know, and that was a strange note of 
there was a note of finality for me. I mean, the house I grew up in, my nephew now lives in with his family. So it's it's cool. It's still in the family, but it's like, wow, it's changed. And it's like suddenly somebody that's been there for so much of your life is not there anymore, and that's kind of stunning. Yeah, it's 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 challenging to wrap your head around, um, not to get into too much of a dark place, but I lost my mom three weeks ago today. Um, so I'm it's so kind sorry. of shed an even bigger light on my book <laughs> because Penny has lost both of her parents and it took her six plus months to come back and settle the estate. Um, I'm in the process of doing that with my own family's stuff and it's very I'm glad that I got a lot of it right because it's it's really hard it's really hard to come back to a place where your family made so many memories and had so many experiences and realized that potentially your time is limited Mm -hmm. in Penny's case she doesn't yeah Yeah, in Penny's case, I won't give too much away, but the sale of the house becomes less certain as she travels through the book. Mm -hmm. In my case, my mom had already sold her house. (laughs) Right. But there's still much to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I definitely am going to be asking a bit more of that too, but before we get on more of the characters – you like I say, you set this scene, and it's one that's so vivid to me because I I lived it in a different state, in a different town, but I did live it. And I have to ask about the sugar house because, as I said, I grew up on a farm. We have a real deal sugar woods, and I <laughs> we I just some of the best times that I recall with my dad were up in the middle of the woods and during a run. There would be times where dad would stay late into the night to boil, and sometimes I would stay with him. And, you know, I just remember that being one of the best times because we would be busy doing the whole thing, but we'd get to talk. And being the last of a, of a large family, the, the time to get to sit and talk with your dad is not always – it's not infinite. <laughs> no. So – my question for you would be, did you have a sugar house? Were you involved with one, or was there one around? It must have been. <laughs> um, I did not have a sugar house. We did not live out in the hills. We lived on the common, so there was no place to really have one. But we visited local sugar houses often. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of what really set me on the path of creating the sugar house as sort of a central element was the memory that I had of there were two boys that were childhood friends. I think sadly they have both passed away. Um, Mm -hmm. But when we were probably in middle school, they had a rudimentary sugar house in their backyard and I happened to go visit their neighbor And I smelled the steam and I went, whoa, what is going on here? And I went over Uh to um, the kid's house and spent the day with them making maple syrup. And they let me get involved in every aspect. They showed me how it all worked from, from the beginning to the end, from how it has to boil and go through the different channels before it comes out as syrup. And 
that experience plus growing up in New Hampshire, I'm a I'm a maple syrup purist. You will not put Aunt Jemima on my plate. <laughs> that will not happen. Same here. <laughs> no, that's yeah, that is so cool. Yeah. And and that is and and it's so interesting too because, uh, well, my nephew Aubrey, he had one of those. He still does. He had a he had like a mini sugar house, uh, behind his parents' house, and it I believe it is still there. And I'm I'm sure he's uh, turning his kids onto it too, or eventually will. Um, and this is this was one of the great things. Like it's cool that they let you get involved because it's like our next character here, Ethan wanted to do some stuff in the sugar house and there was sort of the running joke of, well, what's he got? Am I going to get to do something today? And, <laughs> yeah. and Ethan, <laughs> Ethan is cool. I mean, this is a guy, you know, tell us about him because he, he plays such an important part here. And yet he's, he's that guy who doesn't kind of really want to be reminded of all this. Tell us about Ethan. Ethan is completely from my imagination. Um, okay. I would love to say that, like Penny, he's based on a bunch of people. Um, not really. He's just sort of this person that evolved as I wrote. He was a high school baseball star who had his career ended by an injury. That is based in truth from my job, which we can get to. Um, mm-hmm. I'll explain a little bit more about that later. Ethan is he's sort of the anti whatever you would think. Like the assumption is he's the high school baseball star. He's really good looking. So he must be the popular kid. And he's really not, he's not into any of that. He's not a partier. He's a very decent human being who in spite of challenges at home is determined to do right in the world and go out and make a difference in his own way. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's also Penny's childhood best friend. <laughs> yeah, and um, uh, and I do go on. <laughs> I had people like that. I had um, there was a boy who lived on the common. He was the dentist's son, and and I only remember his first name was Seth. And he sort of inspired young Ethan because Seth and I would go have fun little adventures playing in the woods and climbing trees and doing all that fun kid stuff. Um, and from there, Ethan just evolved into this really cool guy that I happen to like a lot as a character. That's cool. And it's even better was, um, was Mickey. I absolutely loved this kid. She came across as what a teenager should be or would be, as I recalled sort of in my growing up. Mickey's a a fun one. Tell us about her. Mickey is absolutely inspired by every kid that I have ever had the opportunity to work with through my job. During the day, I am a reporter for a local weekly newspaper in Chatham called the Cape Cod Chronicle. And through my job, I am a sports writer, and I cover primarily high school sports, which um, prior to working for the Chronicle, I worked for a different weekly, same thing. So through the past 15 or so years, I've had the opportunity to meet and interact with some really amazing high school kids. Um, 
but it's the kids from Montemoy Regional High School that have just captured my heart. Um, these kids are thoughtful and thought-provoking and insightful and intelligent, and there are so many of them that regardless of what they do at school, they are very unfazed by you got to wear what you, you know, you don't have to wear this label. You don't have to worry about social media. They just sort of exist and, and everything else falls away. Um, many of them happen to be very strong young women. And it was super easy to model Mickey on that. Mickey is also based on a person that I know who is non-binary, um, who is in eighth grade. And I appreciated Emerson's ability at that age to just live their truth. They just, mm. they, they knew who they were and they didn't have a problem bringing that to light and being that person, regardless of whatever high school drama there might be. Um, and I really wanted to channel that into Mickey, who I see is just a really strong, fun, upbeat, determined young woman. And I just love the way she has that that youthful fascination and we won't give it all away but she she is willing to search she's willing to poke around and i just found that i just found that yep this was this was me a little bit in high school i tended to search in on my own and i tended to look for things in a different way but uh it was kind of it, it was very refreshing to have that and um it's it's really interesting too that um you know with the good comes the not so good and that brings up uh Dennis which is Ethan's brother I think <laughs> and now this was an interesting thing because in an unpublished novel that I wrote which set was kind of set in my hometown and I made a point of keeping my family out of the book except for my mom and um I had to have a, I, I had to have an antagonist. The hardest <laughs> part for me was building an antagonist that I'm afraid if ever this book came out they'd know who it is. But the thing is, he was not that person. He this guy was an amalgam of several very difficult, very strange, and downright dysfunctional and even sociopathic characters that I had to deal with. And it's like, what did you do for Dennis? How did you, how did this guy come about? <laughs> that is a loaded question, but it's the truth. Um, the composite of every person that ever bullied me in my life. And mm -hmm. I was bullied pretty badly at times. Um, sadly, the, the flip side of Walpole is that the class of children that I went through school with um, sadly was known as one of the worst because mm -hmm. so many of them were just mean, um, nasty. It escalated when I went to high school. Some of what Dennis does in the book are things that happened to me. Um, I would get randomly hit when I was walking past certain doors in the hallway. I would get tripped. I would get pushed. I would get whatever it was just ongoing and constant and it was it was a general circle of kids um so when i had to come up with the character of dennis 
I just put every bully inside of him, and that's how the character evolved. And at the same time, he's going to be fairly relatable to those who have had to deal with that. That was mm-hmm. that was important, and it was important that people see that his parents did the best they could with what they had at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, because back in my day, when a kid, it's very true what it says in the book, when a kid was trouble, they were just trouble. People didn't understand that some kids had general genuine issues that needed to be addressed. Mm-hmm. But back in the yeah. late 80s, the mid 80s, that was not a thing. So Dennis is very much like some of the kids that ran wild and did some really stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, only he's much darker and meaner. Yeah. Well, I, I think about growing up in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. I'm not that much older than you, and uh, it was the same thing. There was no such – there was no thing either. It was, it was, it was the, just as you had said, and it wasn't until some years after us, I think, that people started to look inward a little more deeply in some of these cases. And now you start to see the different shades of uh, the issues that we went through but never really got addressed, but maybe and some kids are getting addressed and that sort of thing. Um, and I, in your job, I mean, you, as you say, you come across so many, you're coming across a lot of young athletes, but you come across a lot of young folks too. You probably yeah. have a clo- you have a closer interaction with them than maybe some of these kids' parents have. You get to talk to them, you get to see them play, you get to really find out more about them. What do you detect? Yeah. What do you detect as, an, as a writer, even if that's not what you're writing about? You must. What do you see? What I see, especially right now um, with such a chaotic world, I see a lot of kids who really want it to be different, not necessarily in the political sense, but they just want people to stop fighting and stop arguing and stop hating Um, it's very challenging for them to find their voice in a world where everyone is just angry all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. I see where um, social media is very challenging for the kids. Not every kid likes it, but they can't get away from it. So they sort of suck it up and deal with it. That's kind of why I had Mickey be the person who doesn't have a Facebook account um, in the hopes that maybe it'll inspire some kids to just not. Um, But yeah, today's, today's kids also see on the flip side of that, these kids are coming through school with really brilliant ideas and mindsets. I have listened to kids talk to me about their future plans and not really sure what I'm going to get when I say, all right, what are you going to do after high school? And I've had kids just tell me, I want to do this. I want to become a marine biologist because it's really important to me to work with the the sea life and find out how we can clean the oceans and they have plans and they're not just sitting around going like, totally, I think I'll just go to the mall and then I'll hang out a lot. <laughs> Uh, 
Well, it it it, it, it is relieving of me to hear to hear those kind of things because I mean I certainly did hear it um, during my own you know when you when you're interviewing younger people or when when you do book signings because I write young adult primarily and you get to talk to them a little bit and yep. you find that that it's they have the head on their shoulders and let's let's as parents and adults and teachers hopefully be receptive to that because um i recall in high school having absolutely no idea what i was going to do i just knew that i wanted to get out of high school and hopefully live through it and it wasn't until i mean i had i had the slight idea of being doing something in writing and and doing something in journalism and you know when i went where I went, and we've both been there. The, the door just opened. There was just suddenly here was an open door that I could pass through, and it was like oh, yep. And suddenly there's all these other hallways you can go down, and I had to kick some doors open, but we all did. And I'm I'm really happy to hear that. Um, now there's one thing here. There is a there is a sort of a vehicle in this book. And I wanted to get to this specifically because it was so cool. Um, the letters, the box that Penny flips through throughout this book. This was fascinating to me. Tell us a little. Uh, do you have? Do you have something like this, or did you? I did not. It was an idea that I did get from my mother. Um, one of the things that my mom did was she would go and buy greeting cards all the Mm -hmm. time, like just randomly. She would find a card. She liked it. And then she would go home and put it in a box so that she would always have cards to send when the moment arose. And Mm -hmm. then she started sort of setting other things aside and it became like a memory box. And that's what Mm. inspired the idea of finding the box in her father's desk. Um, and I've learned through the cleaning out of my mom and dad's place that there was so much more to that than I ever realized. Like I found sentimental items that went all the way back to when they were first married and now they're mine. And now I have, so I kind of have the magic box now and I have the ability to make my own scrapbook. It's very strange how fiction becomes life becomes fiction. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that box was really important because it was it was like telling a story for Penny to help her heal. And it was like the story within the story, which was even better. Yeah. And some of the items in the box are actually things that I do have. Like I have some I have my mother's gloves from her wedding. I have I can't remember what else was in the box. I have the photos. I have um, I think I have a baby book with my first lock of hair from my first haircut. So I have similar items to what's in that box. And that was a really important, unexpected connection to her parents, who she was grieving immensely at that point. Yeah. And in that grief as well, this was the one thing I've explored this in my own writing more than once. It's that as I said earlier, it's a concept that Penny has got to face her past. And it's again, you know, before she can get on with her life, really, she has got to face this. And um, 
that is part of what drives Penny in the story, isn't it? Yeah, she really, she's done an awful lot of work. She's done an awful lot of addressing the issues and the fallout from the, the um, culminating the catalytic event in the story. I don't think that's a word. Forgive me. Um, but from the big, from the major event that happens in her young life, she has done all the homework, but this is the big, this is the final hurdle. This is like, she hasn't come home. She hasn't really been there for a long time. She hasn't been there for any length of time when she's come home. So now this is that opportunity and it's her chance to finally get over that, that last mountain Right. Well, you have talked about um, your hometown and you've talked about what your upbringing was like. Um, getting more to your personal life here, you have often talked of your late father as being a big influence. I, I remember meeting the man myself. I met both your parents. Um, yep. Let's talk more about your dad and what what did he bring out in you? I, I the one meeting I had with him, I was I was struck by him as being quite impressed by the man, and I thought, this is the kind of guy my dad would like. Yeah, so my dad us, was. Tell us about him. My dad was awesome. Um, his name was Fred, and he was a businessman. He had an incredible head for business. He, in my life, was I would describe him as quiet strength. Um, hmm. he was not a loud, boisterous person. He was very sort of close to the vest, but incredibly supportive. I remember when I told him that I wanted to be a writer, specifically a journalist. And back then it was like, wait, what? You're a woman. But my dad mm -hmm. didn't stop me. It wasn't like he said, you should not do this. You should do something else. He kind of laughed. But then when I told him I was serious, he's like, you go for it. Um, Huge sports fan, loved sports, loved golf, played golf just about every day until he passed away. Um, but he was, he was like my champion. He would just, he was like this source of support always that I knew I could rely on no matter what. I remember one time, case in point, he had a business trip and it was taking him somewhere in the Midwest but not near Ohio where I was now going to college. So he had his trip rerouted so that on the way home, he could stop in Athens and take me out to lunch and spend some time with me. And oh, he wow. would just do things like that. Um, he would call me. He, he would, he would send me a letter. He was a great letter writer. That's partly where the letters came from that my dad would write me probably every other day. And sometimes they were full on letters. Sometimes they were just little notes. Um, one time he sent me a check for something like $12.14. And when I called him to ask him why he's sending me a check for $12.14, he said, because I wanted my checkbook to balance to all zeros. <laughs> yeah, that was my dad. And he, he was just, yeah, he was, he balanced out my mother's energy. She and I were more feisty and fiery and I love mm -hmm. her to pieces as well. Um, but he was sort of the, 
the chill dude. Even though he was this very tall, formidable guy, he was the chill dude. That's pretty cool. Um, Now, also, we talked about, you know, I think both of us were readers growing up, and we know what we're called when we do that, but um, bookworms is the (laughs) nice word. (laughs) <laughs> what were you yeah. reading growing up? What for you? Uh, what what took you? <laughs> oh my God! Well, I I taught myself. Apparently, I taught myself to read when I was three. I don't remember okay. this, but my mother used to tell me a story about the fact that I was over at the neighbors, and the neighbor grandmother called up my mom and she said, "Fran, Kathy's reading." And my mom went, I know, isn't it cute? She likes to turn the pages and tell the story. She's like, no, you don't get it. She's actually reading the book to me. And she hasn't read this one yet. So my mother was blown away. That started a lifelong obsession with reading. I have read everything from Dr. Seuss, Shel Silverstein, to Shakespeare. When I was in middle school they had no idea what to do with me because I'd already plowed through all the Judy Bloom I could and whoever <laughs> else was popular at the time Essie Hinton um and I started reading Stephen King when I was in eighth grade because oh that's not? a good time for it um oh yeah it was terrific um certainly old enough for that But yeah, and ever since then, I will read whatever I can get my hands on, whether it's Stranger in a Strange Land or fluffy romance novels. It doesn't matter. I I just love a really good book. Um, My favorite remains To Kill a Mockingbird, but there are so many other incredible works that I have read that have inspired me. Um, I can't imagine not reading a book. I can't. Now, if someone right. said, you don't get to read anymore, I don't know what I would do. Cry a lot. Uh, yeah. Um, any particular you, – you, you mentioned some good names. Any particular one that, that we might find a bit out of the box, an author, male, female, whatever, that just oh. you know struck you? Um, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. Oh, cool. <laughs> Memories of a Geisha – or Memoirs of a Geisha is – one of my favorites of all time. Yes. Um, that is that is a ridiculously good book, and uh, a woman that I know or that I used to know here on the Cape wrote a memoir called "The First Signs of April" that was absolutely just heartfelt and beautiful. Um, And then there's a cheeky little book that I got from my mother many years ago called Letters Letters from Cleo and Tyrone that are letters that are written to cats by cats. It's a pair of cats that write each other's letters. So, yeah, I'll read pretty much everything. That is cool. Well, um, as you were growing up, I mean – you know, you were saying that you were looking to go into journalism. When when did it, you decide that writing in any form was going to be your thing? <laughs> well, this comes back to my dad. It's all his fault. <laughs> my dad brought home. I don't even remember if he brought it home or if he just pulled it out of the attic, but he gave me this old Smith Corona typewriter that wow. not electric, not electric, and kids everywhere are going, typewriter? 
Um, mm-hmm. And he brought it home or he pulled it out and he gave it to me. He says, here, this still works. Have some fun with it. And I started typing. I think I was eight, eight or nine years old. And I started writing short stories and little poems. And then I wrote a family newspaper and then I just went crazy. It was like, I couldn't get enough. I would type on random scraps of paper and put out little whatever. And it just, between reading everything and then having the ability to type, I was hooked. I was like, this is it. I want to be a writer. I want to do awesome stories. I especially love magazines because stories are longer and wordier, but ideally Mm -hmm. I wanted to write a book. So yeah. And journalism became a thing when I realized that that's, you know, like if you wanted to be a professional writer, you needed to be a journalist. So that's what I headed. That's when I headed in that direction. Mm-hmm. Now you went to the script school of journalism. Go ahead. Go ahead. I did. Um, I went to St. Joe's for a year, which is where I met you. And then unfortunately they didn't have a journalism major at the time that encompassed writing. So I went out to a high university in 87 and mm-hmm. that was that was a good move. That was a really good move because I had some incredible professors. I had some really terrific colleagues in my classes, and and I learned a lot. Um, plus, Ohio was a really great place to go to school. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's been it's been a really rewarding career. The irony, however, is that I did not go to school for sports journalism. That I fell into because that's the job that was available at the time. <laughs> I well, so. that's it's what we do, isn't it? It, it broadcasting same yeah. way. And when I, you know, when I was in college, people were like stunned that I was working for a country music station, and I said, "Well, it, that's where the job is," <laughs> and, yeah. and that's and that's what that's you did. That's what pays the bills. Yeah, well, is it was it interesting? Were you able to like shift from regular journalism to to sports journalism? Was it an easy transition? It was made easier because when I didn't know what I was necessarily writing about, I would call my dad, and I huh. would talk to him. I was like, "All right, Dad, I need some really good football lingo. I need to do a story on the golf team. Help me out here." And through that interaction, but also. I mean, I realized how much I learned from him. We kind of had an unspoken tradition that when the weather wasn't great or I was just home or not wanting to go outside, we just sit and watch games together. And I guess I learned by osmosis because I, hmm. I ended up knowing far more than I gave myself credit for. Oh, that's cool. Now I love it. And... Now now sports writing is a blast. I love I especially love high school sports because the kids are playing the games because they love them, not because there's money involved, um, not because they're going to get a big paycheck. Yeah, some of them definitely want to get college scholarships, but even those kids know that this is the time you want to play the sports because it's fun and because you really love it. And that makes it so different and so special. Cool. Now, in terms of the creative process, I mean, writing a newspaper article, writing a news story, anything like that, that to me always felt like one thing. Uh, In terms of 
going to the book, making the jump to the book and realizing you have almost unlimited pages to work with? How, how did you gear yourself for that? I had to... I had to consult the thesaurus a lot because when you're writing for a, a newspaper, especially yep. you have this much space, you, you are allowed this many words. And if you go over that, you could get into trouble and have to cut your story. So I had to get back into the mindset of, Oh, I can get really descriptive. Now I can use longer words and more, more colorful words and, and say things that I'm not able to stay in print. So it was mm-hmm. a shift, but it was it was a lot of fun being able to expand my horizons. That is cool. How about putting the book together and the story? What what is your process? What was your process like in putting the Sugar House together? How did you start mapping it out or did you? <laughs> um all of my creating, creative writing teachers right now would just cringe. I didn't map anything. Um, wow. I, I have never been that person who could make a map and a timeline and an outline and a thing. It just has to come. I toyed around with the idea for probably six months before I really started writing because, truth be told, it started with the pivotal scene, and I went, oh, my God, I can't write a book about that. That's too rough. No, no, no. And then I realized, yes, I can because the point is the survivor, the the woman who comes out of it. So I toyed around with it, and then one night I found myself with free time, and I started writing. Um, I started writing not the opening scenes, but one of the sort of beginning parts. And then, and then it just sort of flowed. It was like, now that I tapped into the proverbial tree, the sap was running and my brain was like, okay, slow down. (laughs) And then COVID hit, which was a nightmare on so many levels, but I was then home working remotely so I had a lot of free time, and that was a big help. Mm-hmm. Now, your challenge, son, yeah, go on, go on, yeah. Yeah, the challenge was that I'm a freelance editor, and I'm a reasonably priced freelance editor for a reason, because I feel like people have valuable stories but they don't always have the financial means to put them out in the world, which I think is not okay. I think it should not be exclusive to people with money. Um, Mm -hmm. But the irony of that is because of my own financial limitations, I can't hire a big pricey editor either. So I had to do it on my own, which I don't recommend, but I went through my own book with the, the cold heart of someone who would, be editing it if it wasn't theirs and did the best I could with what I have. Um, ideally in the future, I would love to work with an, a different editor than myself. <laughs> right. But it's, it's a challenge. It's very challenging. That's the part of private or independent and or self-publishing. that's really hard because editing doesn't come cheap. And right. that's what inspired me to do it because so many people have great stories that deserve to get out there. 
and that's the thing the, the the landscape of the book world has changed because self-publishing is finally not being just looked down upon as much and you know we're talking about like right now these last several years we're seeing innovation in so many on so many different fronts and in the creative side of things the DIY process is so much it, it's so much more challenging, yes, and it can be very difficult at times, but I've been through it. And even on an independent press, it's the same thing. Um, you still have to do the work, and you still have to do a lot of other things and wear a lot of hats. So I, you're, you're going through the same thing I think all of us have when it comes to that. Yeah. it's And it's interesting seeing it from both sides, from the editing standpoint and the publishing standpoint. Um, many people who hire me to edit are surprised by the fact that it's not one round of edits, that there are multiple rounds of edits, that you don't just yes. submit a book, get it edited, and you're done. Um, there's right. always something. I think the most comforting thing my publisher said to me was, no matter how many times you go through a book, there will always be mistakes. Yes. And even in the top authors, like even in Stephen King books, even in really popular today's contemporary fiction writers there will always be an error or two because we're human and we don't pick everything up exactly but exactly. i think having having the perspective of both sides i i would dare say it makes me a better editor because i get it right now you are signed to wicked whale publishing how did you get signed tell, tell us about them um, Wicked Whale Publishing is owned by a good friend of mine whose name is Kate Conway. Kate published a series of young adult novels sort of in the sci-fi fantasy realm that are absolutely fantastic. They start with a book called Undertow, and Kate was looking for beta readers, so I signed up to be a beta reader, with, and she really appreciated my attention to detail, and slowly but surely started throwing me more work and that's how I got into the editing. Well, when, um, when it came time to publish, I immediately thought of Kate and contacted her and said, I finally wrote my first book. And she's like, yeah, let's do this. So it's for me, it's all about if I can do it locally, I would love to do it locally. And Kate's local. She's here on the Cape and she does an incredible job. She knows all the nuances and all the, the places that you need to look and all the formatting that you need to take care of. She's also a graphic designer and designed my incredible cover. Um, oh, that's cool. So I can't say enough about her. She's amazing. That is very cool. Well, what is next for Kat? What, uh, what are you working on now? <laughs> uh, where, where do we go from here? Um, I have several ideas bouncing around my head um i'm not gonna i'm not gonna tip that hat just yet but there are more books coming absolutely more books coming um whether they will be set again in walton i'm not sure but definitely the 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 box of creativity has been opened and i'm excited by that possibility that now now i'm a writer <laughs> Indeed you are. Well, like Pinocchio, I'm a real boy. I'm a real writer. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, listen, 
uh, as we wind up here, where can we find the book? Where can we find The Sugar House? Right now, it's primarily on Amazon. Um, but if you are on Cape Cod and you have the pleasure of visiting the Yellow Umbrella Bookstore in Chatham, Massachusetts, it is there. I am looking into um, having it be carried in some other bookstores, ideally in Keene, New Hampshire, and also on the Cape. Um, or you could just contact me at onewickedwordsmith at gmail.com. All right. Very good. And my last question for you, what advice do you give any aspiring author? Is there any one rule of the road for you? Don't assume your idea isn't a good one. Everyone is so hard on themselves. And I've learned by being an editor that there are so many incredible stories out there. If you feel like you have one, then start writing it. Just start. Just sit down and start and see where it takes you. Um, and I guess the second piece of advice would be please get an editor because there are so many people that don't. And it's not that you're a bad writer. It's just every work needs some tweaking and some help. But absolutely just pick up the pen, pick up the keyboard, just do it. Just absolutely do it. All right. Well, Kat, it's been wonderful to have you on. This hour has blown by so fast. And again, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been amazing. All right. Our guest on the Brown Posey Press Show has been Kat Schmidt, author of The Sugar House, available from Wicked Whale Publishing out of Massachusetts and also from Amazon. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of the Brown Posey releases Searching for Roy Buchanan, Live from the Cafe, and A Moment in the Sun. Coming soon, I will have the sequel to Searching, Call It Love. This is the BookSpeak Network. 